0: Hello everybody, I hope you're all doing well. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to everyone. I hope you've all had an amazing holiday season and continue to do so. Let's cozy up by the fireplace and fight off these chills that will be coming as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Even the Police Couldn't Save Themselves Written by ProxWarp Flicks of snow drifted from the evening sky. A stretch of thin clouds swirling in a grayish-dark amorphous blob over the lone cruiser as it speeds down the desolate highway. A gentle musty scent of wet earth wafts across the cabin through the rolled-down window from the driver as Cooper sat in the back seat of the car, glancing out the water-speckled windows at the dark forest across the road. Dense wooded trees passing by so quickly, they seemed to merge into one as the vehicle picked up on its speed. The sun beats down on the horizon and parting the already sparse clouds. The snow had ceased to fall, remnants of it crusting the edges of the asphalt in dirt laced piles. The handcuffs were painfully cutting into his wrists. It noisily clinked as he shifted uneasily in the back seat, his butt already starting to become sore from the long drive. The driver makes a split-second of eye contact with Cooper in the rearview mirror, which was just enough to spark a conversation that pierces the tension of the silence. I assume you didn't do it then. The driver remarks, his gaze shifting back onto the empty road. He was a stout man, likely already in his late thirties. He carried a hint of a southern accent in his voice, eye bags, a scraggly beard, and a pair of aviators sitting on top of his hair, hinted that the officer likely dealt an experienced with young punks like him before. Does it really matter? Cooper asked, peering back out into the trees. Nah, not much. You know, I've driven a lot of people like you down to this prison before. God knows how many. Usually I would have gotten the I didn't do it catchphrase by now. And what would you say? And say, yep, I know you didn't. The man lets out a slight chuckle as he readjusted the rearview mirror, likely not the first time that he had joked on the same subject before. The radio on the dashboard chatters to life as a shrill static-filled female voice fills the cabin. Dispatch to all available units. Be advised. 1091E near the Perkins Deed exit of 285. All units are to keep a lookout for a 91V in the area. The officer blinks, reaching in and producing a pack of Marlboro from his breast pocket. He flicks the lighter as he draws in a lungful, exhaling out the window as he shot a glance at Cooper through the metal bars that separated both men. Cigarette? I don't smoke. Suit yourself. He stuffs the box back into his pocket as he readjusted his seat. His partner sitting adjacent yawns and stretches as he rubs his hands over his clean-shaven face, still half-awake. His legs are rested on the dashboard. His body leaned back in the passenger seat, with his hat over the top of his eyes, a visor-like. Cooper glanced at both their name tags in the review. Driver was storage, his partner Merlin. Any of that on the radio seemed to be of interest. Cooper asked, absentmindedly. Well, all of it, but that junk box never shuts the heck up. You pay too much attention to it in this seat, and you're going to drive yourself crazy. The stock replied, smirking. All officers are available for incoming 21. He shuts off the radio as the car plunges into silence. I followed your case a little, being a makin' and all. Stock remarks, waving his hands at a handful of files poking out in the glove compartment. "'You're from Macon, yourself?' Cooper asks incredulously. The officer turns his head to face Cooper, engrossed in the moment. (laughs) "'Yep. Came to Atlanta in the 90s to become a city cop. Always wanted to be one, work on a murder case like that senatorial mess you got yourself mixed up in. "'Real shame, though. Look out on the road!' Cooper jolted forward in his seat, his head recoiling in the process. A colossal tree teeters and crashes onto the road ahead of the car, its branches swaying violently from the inertia. Everything happened all at once, faster than Cooper the officers could comprehend. Oh crap! The cruiser swerved sharply, the tires screeching in protest as it narrowly missed the tree its inhabitants thrown onto the sides of the door as it screeched away from the road down a steep hill incline into the adjacent forest. Bushes, pebbles, and tree branches collided with the windscreen of the vehicle, small cracks forming at its edges. The vehicle overturned on its sides numerous times as it careened further down the hill before finally coming to a halt in a muddy ditch. Hacking coughs, pained groans, and the deflation of airbags were the only audible sounds within the upside-down cruiser. Cooper woke up lying on the roof interior of the car, a scream of pain coming up from the passenger side as Cooper glanced at Merlin, who was still buckled into his seat. Cooper felt a rush of blood to his head as he began feeling dizzy, his hands still in chains behind his back. My leg, my leg, man, I'm bleeding. As Cooper regained his bearings, he appeared more closely at Merlin, and to his shock he realized that the man had his left leg in all the wrong direction. He had sworn that he saw a splintered bone jutting out of the skin, but the man moved his legs out of sight before Cooper could be sure. Dang it Merlin, how many times do I have to remind you not to put your dang legs onto the dashboard? Stork yelled as he unbuckled his own seatbelt, causing him to fall onto the roof with a thud. Don't move, I'm going to get the kid out of the trunk. Stork groaned as he crawled out of the window of the door, getting on his feet as he stumbled to the back. Cooper heard the pop of the trunk opening as he heard equipment and toolkits spilling onto the forest ground. Steps could be heard, rounding the car to the other side of the passenger seat as Doc unbuckled his partner and firmly pulled him out of the car, laying him on the ground. He was still breathing heavily as he craned his face to survey his own legs which was now pulling a good amount of crimson red liquid into the earth. Oh crap, oh no. Merlin whimpered as he clutched his legs, his breathing straining from the immense pain. Alright, breathe. Remember your training. Remember your training. You can do this. Stork said as he unzipped the kit and took out a handful of medical equipment. How do I remember my training if I'm the one bleeding out to death on the ground? Merlin cried as he painfully writhed. I quit being a baby, you're gonna be fine. And I was reciting to myself for crying out loud. Storik snapped as he applied pressure to the wound with his bandage, with Merlin's screams echoing all throughout the forest. The breeze of the forest swept through the tree lines, stirring dry leaves and twigs to fall onto the forest floor. Stork dragged Merlin to a nearby tree, gently laying him against the trunk. Merlin was still breathing, but his breasts were shallow and quick. His leg is wrapped in duct tape, a belt, and a splint that seems to hold together relatively well. Although it may not look like much, it had certainly proved to be helpful in stopping the blood. Cooper was still cuffed in the back seat of the car when Stork rapped on the windows. Naked, kid, you stand there. Don't move and don't try anything stupid while I go get help." The officer walked over to the front, as he reached in and pulled out a radio transceiver from the car, holding the device to his lips before clicking on a button. The device booted to life as it started to sizzle and crackle. Yeah, this is Zulu-277 to dispatch, repeat, Zulu-277 to dispatch, I'll copy, over. Star Trian stated his phrase, with more vigor added to the last word. This is Zulu-277 to dispatch. I'll copy. Over. Zulu-277 requesting for a 129. We've got injured personnel. We need immediate backup. Over. Still no game. Was the radio damaged? Star gave the box a couple of light slaps as he attempted communications. After a minute of trying, he gave up walking around the car as he attempted to assess the damage. The car was totaled with the hood as an unrecognizable twisted metal. He marched over to Merlin who was now relatively alert, still clutching onto his leg. Merlin, I'm gonna go check on the highway to see if we can call for help. Stay here and keep an eye on that fella in the car. If he does anything stupid you call me back. I got it, we will do. Merlin eyed Cooper who was still sitting in the car. His death stare, unwavering, he looked back at the two officers. He gestured to the walkie talkie holstered on his belt, as he started to hike up back where the vehicle came from, following the trail of tire marks in the flattened grass. A couple of minutes later, Stork reached a point in the incline where it had started to gradually level out. He looked around as he scratched his head. This shouldn't be right. He continued following the tracks until it had suddenly ended abruptly in a patch of grass. He stood there for a second pondering where the highway should have been, when his thoughts were suddenly interrupted by the radio crackling to life. A desperate plea called out from within, as a blanket of heavy static shrouded most of the voice. "Stock, need help, something coming. Silence ensued followed by cracks of a deafening gunfire in the distance. The sound came as soon as it went, which sent Stock into a frenzied running back to the car. As soon as he had reached the site, he froze in his tracks, heart beating loudly in his chest. He could still feel adrenaline surging through his veins, his hands having a slight tremor. His partner was nowhere to be seen at the tree, leave for a couple of empty bullet casings on the ground where he should have been. He slowly approached the car with caution and peered inside the window, When to his surprise, Cooper was still inside. However shaken up and shivering, crawled up into an unresponsive fetal position. Hey, talk to me. What happened to the other officer? He unholstered the service weapon from his belt as he shone the flashlight around the forest, which was starting to dim from sundown. The beam of light was powerful, but it was soon overpowered and engulfed in the darkness of the void. He rounded the car towards the tree where Merlin sat, pistol at the ready. Was it a cougar, mountain lion? The radio previously did mention of an animal attack, and he wasn't taking any chances. Merlin, Merlin, can you hear me? He shouted, but no answer came. And then it struck him; his blood running cold. There were no sounds of the forest when they came in—no birds, and no insects, no passing cars. Either they're alone or they're not alone. Both thoughts are equally terrifying for the mind to comprehend. He hastily made his way over to the ground where Merlin was last seen and examined the area. Matted grass, but it seemed to end there. No signs of a struggle or a drag. The only evidence that Merlin existed was the empty casings which were on the ground. The empty casings on the ground. What in the St. Mary... Stock stared in horror as these shells slowly one by one started to sink and disappear into the forest as if it was taunting him, calling out to him. His feet were frozen to the ground, although his mind was screaming for every inch of his body to run. Suddenly he snapped out of the trance and came to his senses, however realizing that his feet were starting to sink into the ground as well. This was in quicksand, the ground was eating him alive. He could feel the sting of corrosiveness eating into his rubber boots, as he struggled to free himself. He watched desperately at Cooper who was staring at him with horror behind the window, as he sank further and further down, the ground reaching up to his heels. No, this was not how he was going to die, not like this, not in the middle of this forsaken forest. He hastily untied his shoes as he pulled one foot free from the sinking boot, doing the same for the other. Stepping unsteadily on the boots, he leapt with all his might at the area that he assumed to be safe as he landed on his chest, knocking the wind out of his lungs. He caught a spare second of solace just as the muffled screams of Cooper resonated from the car, catching his attention. The man seems to be shouting and gesturing at something, the sound was muddy and distant. He could barely make out the words from the shape of his mouth. Behind you! The officer whipped around as he saw a large tendril of a vine from the tree meters behind him steadily creeping up for an ambush. As it seemingly knew that its presence was exposed, it shot at inhuman speeds towards stock, reaching the man before he had time to react. The vine pierced at his chest, instantly crumpling the man to the ground. The officer laid motionless as Cooper screamed in panic, the tendril working its way towards the prisoner trapped in the walls of a vehicle. He desperately worked at the handles of the door but to no avail, before hitting his fists against the glass. The vine prodded at the peculiar shape of the enigmatic structure as it applied pressure to the glass, webs of cracks forming at the window. The prisoner screamed, closing his eyes as the glass shatters, just as the loud cracks of gunfire erupted from behind the vine. Cooper slowly opened his eyes to see the officer standing over a pile of ropey motionless vines, the man slowly limping over to the car. Stodd grunted and coughed as he unzipped his jacket and took it off, exposing an underside plate carrier that was considerably dented and damaged by the impact of the strike. The vine was dead for sure, as the officer fired another round into the rope for safe measures. Thanks for helping me back there, that was some scary supernatural stuff. Cooper muttered as he peered over at the tendril. Well, it isn't so supernatural anymore, is it? Stock popped the side door of the car open. Would you tell me now what the heck happened to my partner? Cooper froze up as he recalled the previous scene in his head. He was jolted back to reality by the cop impatiently, snapping his fingers in front of his face, signaling for an answer. The... the vines. The earth took him like they almost took you, but he wasn't so lucky. When he sank halfway down the vines from the trees reached down and grabbed onto him. I thought that they were helping him at first and then he started to stretch. The prisoner stretched his arms wide before uttering a pop sound with his mouth. The officer gagged as the prisoner pointed him to the upper portion of Merlin's body, which was hanging in the tree line. Tendrils of vines cooled around the man's torso, his intestines hanging out for all to see. The face of Merlin was covered by the vines, but Cooper could imagine the look of terror on the police officer's face during these last moments, etched into a paralytic frozen state. This whole forest, it's cursed, Cooper continued. The road back was gone, is it not? How did you know? The officer inquired, taken aback. I was looking at the GPS on the dashboard when you left. The road was still there for a second, then it was gone, poof. No static, nothing. Just suddenly replaced by all forest. You think that we're somewhere else? Don't be crazy now. It's probably just the system acting up or something. Also I need you to turn around." The prisoner was perplexed at the strange order that the officer gave but complied and turned. A moment later he felt his hands relax as a clinking sound of handcuffs could be heard dropping out of the ground. Stock handed Cooper a walkie talkie. He looked at the prisoner expectantly as Cooper hesitated before grabbing the device. "'What is it for?' Cooper exclaimed. Well, in case we accidentally split up, press and hold this button here and talk into the microphone. I know you wouldn't run away since we're all stuck in this cursed place. The officer replied, striding to the back of the trunk. He searched the equipment laying on the ground until he finally found what he needed. He reached down and grabbed onto the shotgun, checking its ammunition count before checking its safety. A Mossberg perfect for crowd control used widely in law enforcement and peacekeeping. The officer slung the firearm over his back as he grabbed onto a flashlight and a curious-looking gun, its body all red. Here, catch this. We need to take all the crap that we can carry before we leave. He tossed the items over to Cooper, who had managed to catch the flashlight but missed the gun. Bad throw, Cooper remarked. They don't judge me. Cooper pocketed the torch into his pants and he examined the gun. Are you sure that we really need to use this? I don't see any reason to use this flare gun unless we were trying to light the whole forest on fire. Either that Stock ignored the directed remarks or he hadn't paid any attention to the prisoner, as he continued to stuff essentials into a black duffel bag without a reply. A couple of minutes later they were set to depart. The sun had already disappeared below the trees shrouding the forest in a gloomy black silhouette. I've drove across this highway for god knows how many times to prison, which I'm certain that I should know our approximate bearings. From what I can recall, I think there should be a fire lookout tower a few clicks away from our position. How can you be so sure? Have you seen the tower before? It's been on this road around since forever. It's always sticking out of the tree lines like a sore thumb. You have to be blind and not catch it earlier. Well, whatever you say, chief, you think that it's inhabited. Do I look like freaking Santa Claus to you? Like if I know. Stark grunted dismissively, signaling the end of the conversation. The rest of the trek was relatively uneventful for the occasional cracks of twigs and branches falling, which had always sent the duo into a panicked alert. It Should be around here somewhere. The officer muttered to himself, straining his eyes at the trees. Although he still could not be sure of the tower, he had a sudden chill down his spine as the forest suddenly came alive with the ambient calls of wildlife. Shrieks of the forest resonated around the pair as a guttural, raspy, harsh scream stood out to the clearing to the left. They froze in their tracks as they stared at the source of the noise. Stock's hands were trembling the most. Shotgun trained towards the dense shrubbery. Nobody made a peep, anticipating an attack. Nothing moved. A black figure burst out of the bush, its wings flapping chaotically as it nearly collided into the face of Cooper. The forest was momentarily lit alight with a dazzling spectacle of orange, white and red, as the muzzle of the shotgun exploded. Grey smoke and ember particles blossoming in all directions. The officer racked the shotgun as he aimed. Son of a... What the... Cooper hissed as he stumbled around and dazed. The officer continued to train the shotgun at the figure. His iron sights laid onto the bird as it flew away into trees and disappeared out of sight. That's a call of the barn owl. We must keep moving. The sound will attract unwanted attention. Oh, so are we just going to ignore the fact that you almost shot into my face? I'm calling my lawyer Saul when we're out of this mess, Cooper exclaimed, jabbing an accusatory finger at Stock. That's generous. Thank you, gesture for me not hesitating in saving your dang life. Would you have wanted me to check out the attacker before firing? You would have been dead by then. Stock fired back with an angry glare. Let's get moving now. Save this unnecessary bickering for later. He trooped forward into the forest, leaving little time for Cooper to argue. He hurried after the officer as specks of void started to fall into the forest floor. Soon it covered in a layer of void as the snow grew thicker and thicker. Where's the dang tower? Cooper waved around his torch, the beam of light melting away the darkness of the trail. The sounds of the chirps of crickets and birds grew louder as the flakes fell heavier by the minute. I don't know, I can't even hear myself think over this commotion. The officer shouted, looking around in desperation. Over there, I think I can see it. Cooper yelled, shining his light at a structure in the distance. It stood tall, supported by extended poles which carried it high up into the skies. It was stretched above the towering treetops, dwarfing even the highest trees in the forest. At the outpost, it seemed intact. Except, there were no light coming from its cabin. That was the least of the duo's concern though, as the ongoing snowstorm had started to slightly hinder their movements. Cooper looked away from the tower for a second as the screeches of the forest was now deafening to the ears. His eyes suddenly catching fast movements within the trees. He swore that he was seeing things. However, his greatest fears were confirmed when he saw a face peeking out from behind the trees. Dozens of yards away. It was unsettling to say the least. The face had had no facial description. It was uh, just a smiling face. An exact replica of the smiley emoji, except it had a contrast of black and white. Its eyes were lifeless void of black, and its mouth was twisted into a sickening smile. It was looking at the motionless as if it was deciding prey from a predator. Cooper stepped backwards before tripping and stumbling over an exposed route. He fell onto his butt, a sharp pain of impact jolting up his body. He stumbled up to his feet as he looked back at the figure, but it was gone. Stock! he yelled, running after the officer who was a few yards ahead of him nearing the tower. "'It's coming!' The officer turned with a puzzled look on his face upon glancing at the man standing in front of him. The shell of looking like a total psycho. What happened? He asked, straining his ears. You've got to speak louder, kiddo. can't hear you. There's a dang monster out there, and I think it's coming for us. A what? A monster. It's coming for us. The officer's blood ran cold upon hearing those words. He peeked over the shoulder of Cooper as he surveyed the forest behind them. He couldn't see anything through the snowstorm, however, he was not sticking around to find out if what the man had said was true. Go, go, book it to the tower, double time. The pair jogged through the heavy snow as the screams of the forest emerged with the increasing howls of the wind and storm, a resulting concoction of sympathy that shakes the nerves of even the most hardened war veteran. We're almost there, they passed a metal sign as they ran, no trespassing. As they reached the base of the tower, the path abruptly ended at a metal ladder which reached up into the cabin of the structure. Go, you climb first. I'll keep an eye out on the forest. The officer ushered him to the ladder as Cooper grabbed into a rung and started to climb. Every rung that he held onto it felt like grabbing at the knives, the cold cutting into his very essence. His hands fell numb as his fingers became stiff the tingle of chill running up his whole body. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, and arms are heavy. There isn't any vomit yet, but he sure had felt like throwing up. The storm is still in full swing as he reached the end of the ladder. He pushed at the hatch which led into the cabin, but realized that it seemed to be stuck from the inside. I can't open it. What did you say? The voice of the officer was carried up with the howl of the wind. I said i can't open it he cupped one hand to his mouth and shouted try barging it we've got little time left the officer shouted back as he saw a looming emaciated figure step out of the tree line it was easily 12 feet high the figure hunched over as it strided toward the tower cooper continued pushing at the hatch as the creature advanced closer he heard the crack of the shotgun below him as he pushed harder throwing his body up towards the hatch. Finally, the hatch gave way as it swung open inwards with a bang. The overturned chair that had been resting on it is pushed to one side as the man climbed up into the hatch. Hey, up here, it's open! He shouted down as the officer hastily started climbing up the rungs. The creature was approaching fast, closing the distance between the tower and itself. It let out an inhuman shriek as it started to dash towards the officer. Hurry up! It's coming! Cooper yelled as he stared in horror at its elongated, grotesque body. The creature reached the base of the tower as it stretched its bony hands out to grab the officer, who was already halfway up the ladder. He cried out as it dug into his leg, shredding the fabric and creating a fresh wound. It wrapped its hands around one leg of the officer, as it attempted to drag him down, do something help me for Christ's sake, stock screamed, his grip loosening. Cooper wagged his head for ideas until something came to mind-the flare. He unholstered the gun from his pocket as he aimed carefully at the figure, taking caution not to miss. He had one chance as the officer wildly trashed about. Cooper prepared to line up on a clear shot. Time slowed down as everything came to a standstill. The barrel erupted into flames as a blinding reddish white projectile shot out of the gun, its trajectory lined into the smile of the monstrosity. It hits the target square in the face, sending out a brilliant firework of sparks and particles as it bounced off. The creature hissed as it cowered and covered its face, the sudden dazzling light stunning it for a second. It screams as it's let go of the officer, retreating back into the woods. Both Stock and Cooper were sitting in the cabin, recovering from the previous events. Nobody said a word as the storm wailed outside. An old antique sofa was pushed over the hatch as a form of barricade. It was a long day. The Stock patched himself up, but Cooper looked around their surroundings, It was apparent that no one was in the tower for a while as the furniture and floors were covered with a thin layer of dust. Stock took out a pack of cigarettes and patted around for his lighter. He attempted to light with his shaking hands, not before doing so with some extent of difficulty. As Cooper glanced at the desk, he saw the outline of a huge box, its features covered under a dusty curtain. Throwing the curtain off, a shiny metal radio transmitter stared back at him. He looked at the numerous buttons and switches that lined the transmitter as his eyes fell upon one labeled, Power. He pressed the button once. Click. The transmitter laid still, dead as ever. He tried again with the other buttons, but the transmitter gave the same result. Are we seriously stuck here? Are there no other towers? He shouted in frustration, kicking one of the legs of the desk. The dust toppled over as the legs splintered, causing the items on it to spill over. One of a black wire leading to the transmitter caught Stock's eye as he signaled to Cooper. Hey, check that wire out. There might be a power supply source nearby. Cooper licks at the wire as he follows its winding directions leading into a cabinet. It swung open on its hinges, revealing an ancient fuse box. Cooper cautiously flicked the switch as one of the light bulbs in the cabin suddenly flickered to life. The orange glow basking the room in a warm, enticing lighting. Suddenly, the radio flickered to life as a string of white noise came from the speakers. Cooper hurried over to the transmitter, setting it upright on the level floor as he attempted to tune the stereo, jumping from channel to channel. Ranger Service for Northbound County. Cooper returned and brought the microphone to his lips as he held the button, attempting to establish contact. Hello? Is anyone there? Hello, please. Say something if you're out there. Please, we need help. Over. Over. He pleaded, agitation and frustration explicit in his voice. The radio went silent for a moment before starting up with a static, heavy, female voice. Hello? Oh, thank God. We need help, please. Hello is someone trying to contact us, this is the park ranger service for northbound county, we're not getting your signal very well, please speak slowly and clearly. Please, please please help god, we're stuck up here in the fire tower in northbound forest, and there's a thing coming- The radio cuts him off. If you can hear this, please repeat your message, as I am unable to understand what you're saying. Hello, can you please identify yourself? Over. Oh my god, okay. This is- okay. My name is Cooper. Hello? Hello? He fumbled with the stereo until the same voice came through the radio again. You're not coming through clearly. Please repeat. Over. Oh god, please. My god, we're going to die up here. There's a thing coming after to get us- don't you understand- A spotlight affixed to the tower was suddenly triggered and turned on with a loud clank. Something triggered the motion sensor, probably a deer. Stock said as he limped over to one of the windows and peered out. If I read you, sir, please do not leave your position. We will send a helicopter to get you as soon as the storm had subsided. Over. Cooper breathed a sigh of relief as soon as he heard the words. However, he sprang back to the radio. Wait, wait, how long? Dawn at the earliest. The hatch suddenly resonated with a series of loud thuds, the wood creaking as it shuddered. Something on the other side was trying to get in. Stock. Cooper. A shaky voice floated from the hatch. Wait, is that Merlin? Stock looked at the hatch as it continued to shudder, however it was not budging under the weight of the sofa. Stock, let me in. I'm, I'm so hungry, please. Merlin, is that you, you son of a... Hang on, I'm coming. Stock limped over to the sofa, attempting to push it off the hatch. No, Cooper yelled, sprinting forward and grabbing the officer by the collar. Both fell to the floor, wrestling violently as they attempted to gain the upper hand. Stock threw a blind punch towards Cooper as he tried to regain his footing. Stock, so hungry. The voice continued, rasping and unnatural. Stock, that's not Merlin. He's dead. You saw him in the trees. Cooper yelled, shoving the dazed officer to the floor. He's gone. Get a hold of yourself. Cooper continued, squaring the man up as he stood back on his feet. Both men were at either side of the room, the sofa and hatch in the middle. No, he's not. He's freezing out there. We need to let him in. Stock dashed at the sofa, attempting to ram it away from the hatch, and Cooper did the same. As both, charged towards the furniture, arms ready to intercept the opposing party, they met in the middle as the sheer momentum sent Stock to the floor, and Cooper stumbling backwards in the broken desk. Everything was silent for a second as both men looked at the shotgun resting against the wall. They looked back at each other as they sprung at the weapon. Stock made it to the shotgun first, lifting the barrel up just as he was tackled by Cooper. The weapon disengaged with a deafening bang at the windows, the glass shattering into tiny pieces. Both men were stunned by the sudden noise, but Stock was the first to snap back. He elbowed Cooper in the jaw just as the man fell to the ground in pain, clutching his face with both hands. Weapon trained on Cooper. Stock eyed him with the barrel pointed at his head. You wouldn't want to do this. It's for my partner." He growled, approaching the sofa with the gun still trained in the man. "'Don't put the gun down. We can talk this through. It isn't your friend. "'Just shut up!' he yelled, spittle flying from the officer's mouth. "'I've had enough of this. This isn't real, Cooper. That is Merlin and he has come—' He tore open the hatch as the man was greeted with a rush of cold air. Everything was quiet. Cooper laid on the floor as motionless as he could be. Stack smiled as he looked down through the hatch. Come in Merlin, we were just- The officer was gone in an instant, snapped away by a blur of black through the hatch. The shotgun clattered to the floor noisily before coming to a rest. The shaky breathing of Cooper was the only audible noise within the room, as the storm had started to subside. He looked at the open hatch as he slowly crawled towards it, uncertain of what he would see below. Slowly peeking out, he was only greeted with a blast of chilly air. The officer was nowhere to be seen. He slinked back in as he slowly closed the hatch, pushing the sofa back on. In the distance, he could make out the morning sun rising over the horizon. Its rays stretched over the mountains and forests, exterminating the darkness of the shadows. Shortly after, the whir of a distant blade could be heard, as the man looked out the shattered window with a blank expression on his face. The helicopter landed shortly after beside the tower, its body painted in yellow and red. A team of rescuers piled out as they attempted to break into the hatch of the tower. The rest was a blur of events as Cooper was carried out on a stretcher into the helicopter. I'm sorry this took so long, I've been typing on this all day now, my hands are aching. It is my testimony to what happened to the policemen. I will be handing a second copy over to the officers waiting in the adjacent interrogation room. Brother, if you're reading this, please put this story up for all to see. I didn't kill Merlin or Stock, the monster in the forest took them. It doesn't really help that I can still hear that melodic shriek in the back of my mind. I'm trying to get closure, but I can't seem to get any closer to putting the experience behind me as much as I tried. Sincerely, Cooper Before we get into the next story, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Rocket Money. Are you wasting money on subscriptions? 80% of people have subscriptions that they forget about. Maybe for you, it's an unused Amazon Prime account or a Hulu account that never gets streamed. Well, there's this great app that I use that helps me track all of my expenses. And because of it, I no longer waste money on subscriptions that I don't ever use. You might have heard of it, it's called Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. So, how does it work? The app shows all of your subscriptions in one place and then it cancels for you whatever the ones that you don't want. It's super easy to use and it's a good way to track all of your subscriptions. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions that you didn't know that you were paying for. Now, how do you cancel a subscription? All you have to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. How easy is that? There's no confusion or roundabout way of canceling things, which makes Rocket Money that much more appealing. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com slash Mr. Seriously, it could save you hundreds of dollars per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com slash I was part of a military group sent on a rescue mission to Mexico. We faced something demonic down there. Written by Colt Leisure. It's an old superstition amongst veterans that your last mission is the unluckiest. I believe it. When I reread the following excerpts from my journal, it is evident the completion of my most lucrative but messiest outing was uncanny. I have changed all the names. Most of you will refuse to believe my tale. I know what happened and I need to share my story. When I was digging a grave. The Sierra Nevada mountain range stretched on for endless miles in front of me. The creosote and sagebrush scents I dried my nose as a tall shadow appeared in the hole that I dug. The unknown man had a gun in his left hand, but it was not pointed at me yet. Marine Corps Sergeant Lawson, the stranger said, I'm Navy SEAL Commander Joseph Card. Pleased to meet you. I dropped my shovel, then I squinted upwards. A Special Warfare Insignia SEAL trident pin glimmered on the lapel of Card's shirt. I wondered if I could disarm him. It was a tactical disadvantage that he was above ground while I was six feet under. There was no way of reversing roles on the fight, and I did not have intentions of making that ditch my place of burial. Not my name, I said. I resumed my work and tightened the grip on the handle and dug the end of the shovel into the earth. I know it is, he said. You're the only one with that ink job. The tattoo that he had referred to was on my right bicep and it read, Saint, a dead sinner, revised and edited. If you'll excuse me, I said, I have more holes to dig. People around here have to bury their loved ones. Tomorrow's a busy day for the cemetery. I need your service, and I know your kill count. You've helped this country. They used to call you the spreader of death. I threw the shovel into the wall of muck and looked up at him while wiping sweat off my forehead. I'm out of service, I said. If I wanted to go on another mission, I would have re-enlisted. This isn't for the government. I'm offering you a chance to do something good and make a fortune at the same time. Are you interested? No. You're wasting talent. You were born to save people and stop threats. This type of work is honorable. I said as I pointed at the shovel. It's practical. I don't kill. I honor the dead now. It's grueling, thankless, and doesn't pay. Come with me. Time is finite. Card bent down and extended his hand to help out. No, I said. I grabbed the handle again and proceeded to dig. Card raised the gun. It was a tranquilizer device. I had seen the device before in Afghanistan. The barrel had a syringe spring out of the end of it along with a burst of brightness. A stinging sensation swelled on my neck. Dizziness overcame my vision as my eyelids grew heavy. I picked up the shovel and threw it at card before he dodged it. You'll thank me in four hours, he said. Blackness covered the sky and swallowed my world. I woke up in a chair. Fatigue enveloped my body. My sight became clearer and I looked around. I was in front of a wooden table. Monochrome walls with expansive windows overlooked grassy plains. A wide theater-sized screen was at the end of the air-conditioned room. Card moved towards where I sat and handed me a jug of blue Gatorade. I nodded at him in thanks, much too tired to show the malice that I felt, and I took a long gulp. Don't try to fight once you're hydrated, Card said. I didn't want to sedate you, but time is running out. Sit back and listen to the mission details. Remember, I'm trying to help you get rich. Where am I? West over hills, an older sounding man said. Texas. I stared in the direction of the echoing and unfamiliar voice. It originated from an individual in a suit and tie who sat at the end of the slab. A diamond studded watch was on his wrist and he had a mop of a slit back of gray hair. There were four other men around the table. They wore casual dress shirts and pants. Their tattoos and demeanors gave them away as blue-collar veterans. I could tell that some were also not brought there by choice. My name is Howard LaSalle, the man said as he stood up and walked near the forefront of the table. I know you've all had run-ins with Mr. Card, so I'll skip this introduction. The four of us looked at each other. The Howard LaSalle from Forbes, one of the grunts had said, the billionaire Howard Lasalle. That's me. Pay attention to what Card has to say. Card cleared his throat while he stood in front of the screen, a remote control in his hand. Welcome, Lasalle said. Everyone, meet our newest guest, Keith Lawson. He's a valiant Marine Corps sergeant. He's been on special operations in Afghanistan. He was part of Endearing Freedom and other classified missions. I never took compliments well. I nodded at the group around the table. Also, meet Josue Morales, an army ranger enlisted for many years. He hunted Noriega in the jungles of Panama as part of Operation Just Cause. Morales nodded. He looked younger than his actual age, but his stare reflected his time on the front lines. Meet Anthony Dryden, someone who's done work as ATF for years and has been a combat rescue officer in the Air Force. Dryden wore a black and white Jack Daniels ball cap. He pulled out a can of wintergreen to chew and placed the dip in the side of his mouth. Meet Matthew Hane. Hane began his military career as an EOD. He became a member of DevGrew. He has participated in acts of counterterrorism. He had the look in his eyes of somebody who wanted to get on with the details. Mr. LaSalle's daughter is kidnapped in Mexico, Cart said. Her name is Victoria. She is a popular YouTube vlogger. Vlogger, LaSalle said with a V. Right, Cart said. Her boyfriend, Robert Lucas, tagged along with her on the trip. The goal was to film various locales down there. They were what the youth called urbex filmmakers. They were searching for an abandoned temple. According to lore, it's the place where the dead get rehydrated and fed to snakes thirsty for blood. It's known in legend as the Templo de Puchan, a place of ancient artifacts and dangerous creatures. I don't think it exists, but they did. During their search, they bribed tourist guides to try and get to it. They ran into some lethal people called entre los escorpinos this translates to among the scorpions they are one of the most vicious cartels in that region this is the remblin card clicked a button on the device the screen lit up behind him with an image of a gold ring resting on the back of a scorpion with a razor sharp stinger card clicked the device again and a picture of a woman holding an ak-47 came up She had black hair as a well of ink. She wore a sand-colored bulletproof vest with another weapon slung over her shoulder. Their leader in the nickname Davarador de Almas, the Soul Devourer. It's pictured here. Her real name is Alicia Baccarin. We have confirmed Lucas is dead. They are threatening to end Victoria's life. They told Mr. LaSalle that they would return his daughter for a price. They now want three billion dollars. I have a lot of money. LaSalle said while his eyes darkened. But not that amount. So, you are all the help chosen to retrieve her. I picked each one of you for a very specific purpose. I went down there alone before deciding a train team was necessary. I discovered a film in a cave Lucas hid in before capture. The car turned around and began playing the found footage. Victoria and Robert laughed in the first scene. They walked down the lanes of Mercado Merced and Mercado Sonora. They went into street markets in Mexico between rows of flea shop stands. They went into an occult bazaar with mason jars, voodoo dolls, spirit boards and candles. A man wearing robes and rings on every finger gazed up at them as they entered. Where can we find the Templo de Puchan? Robert asked. The shaman gave them directions to an outer borough of Mexico City. The two took a riverboat. The famous Island of Dolls were there. The miniature mannequins hung in the trees. Their burnt plastic bodies were beneath a wooden sign. Spray-painted words had designated the area as off-limits. A jump cut in the film occurred. They stood at the mouth of a cave. A scream erupted. It was Victoria's. A gun's muzzle showed up on the right-hand side of the camera view, and a black, gloved hand wrapped around Robert's throat. The camera fell to the ground, and the screen went black. Card clicked again. A photograph of a large mansion made of clay surrounded by fertile green land came up. This is our target, Card said. We infiltrate, take out any threats, in question for more info. The Karin's group resides here when they're not taking hostages or invading villages. Somebody inside knows Victoria's location. We can be there by tomorrow. Let's eat, drink, and rest tonight. We save her life after sunup. Two million dollars each if you bring Victoria back alive, LaSalle said. The chopper that you'll be traveling in has anti-radar. A picture of Victoria LaSalle came up on the screen. She was 22 years old. I looked at the image of the young woman. I thought of her callow worldview, her inherent trust of people and the online gold rush of fame led to her kidnapping. I still believe that the situation she was in was undeserving. Despite how much I disliked the way that Card had drafted me, I felt that I still had to help. If it was only in remembrance of the girl's spirit by exacting revenge, it would be worth it. "We leave tomorrow morning," Card said. "Your lodging for the night is down the hall." "What kind of gear are we getting?" Morales asked. "You'll see." We left the boardroom. "I know the devourador de Almos, Morales said. We walked down a hallway with windows which overlooked a golf course. Morales looked straight ahead. His eyes seemed to peer on into forever before he continued. She has killed some of my family. I can't wait to squeeze the life out of her. Stepping onto the four-bladed, navy-style Blackhawk chopper made me feel at home. It sat on a black and yellow painted helipad built onto a piece of land owned by LaSalle. The smell of sweat and exhaust bombarded us when we went into the chopper. The pilot ignored us and focused on the controls of the dashboard. My boots landed on the floor as ringlets and pipes locked for stretchers and extra seats. I buckled up. The open back cargo area held our weaponry. We were all carrying USB 45 tactical handguns with threaded barrels and suppressors. Our primary weapon of choice was the M14 SOCOM or AK 47Ts. In the incident of a firefight, we would be able to reload by stripping the combatant's body of ammunition. It was the same as what the cartel carried. Our body armor was Class 3A plates made of carbon fiber. Bofang radios were on our belts alongside our holsters. We carried four grenades each. I had a World War II era k bar Some of the others carried a SOG seal pup blades and Benchmade knives. In the back of the chopper were six old Soviet rocket-propelled grenade launchers. There were also mounds, multi-tools, and detachable advanced optical combat gun sights, or ACOGs. I donned bracers which kept my blades secure and within easy reach beneath the long sleeves of my top. It took less than a minute for the Black Hawk to enter the air. The planes below were specks. The houses resembled motionless hands. Some of us were still assembling our guns as we drifted in the atmosphere. We are going to scout the mansion, Card said. We do recon after stalking the premises. If we find the target, we take her in for questioning. Remember that this is a rescue mission. We neutralize threats only when left with no other choice. I looked over at Morales. He pulled out a keychain and stared at it. It had a scorpion frozen in a block of amber attached to the metal pieces. I kept my head down as we passed the outlines of cathedrals, colleges, and museums in Mexico City. Their earth-intinged buildings reflected the clouds and sunlight. There were estates the size of city blocks surrounded by gates below. We kept ourselves fed with protein bars and water as we neared a stretch of land filled with rivers. The landscape resembled a labyrinth of cracked dirt a child had spilled a bucket of water over. The black hawk landed on a hillside facing a field of legumes and different varieties of grass. Card ordered us off, and we began running along the mound. We marched for half a mile before the mansion came into view. Elevated walls with marble slats formed a canopy above a terrace and swimming pool. Black framed windows and roof gardens held verdant plant life, and guapilla shrubberies lined the outskirts of two different courtyards. One was in the front and back, both had white and pink tiles which looked as though they had been dug out from a holy structure and brought there. Beige beams and silver railings encircled a dark wooden spiral staircase. This was visible from where we were because of the absence of glass. A statue stood next to the swimming pool, it looked like Lady Justice. Instead of scales, she held a snake in one hand and a severed head in the other. Do you know what that statue is? I asked Morales. The dope god Olokan, he said. She is always carried by the cartel. Get down, Card said. We laid flat on our stomachs and took cover behind a row of bushes. We peered through these sights of our sniper rifles. Card pulled out a pair of infrared binoculars. Lots of scorpions there, he said. Remember the less engagement the better. We'll wait here all night for Alicia if we have to. I looked out at the rear courtyard. Two men walked. One was a scorpion. His uniform was normal for the group. He had on beige khakis, a tactical overcoat, and an AK-47. He was pointing his weapon at the second man who was in his 70s. The old man's hands were behind his back as the scorpion prodded him along. He kicked the hostage in the back of the knees. The elder dropped and the scorpion aimed the rifle at his head. The scorpion hit the old man with the butt of the weapon and made him squirm. I aimed at the scorpion's kill zone and I squeezed the trigger. A crimson trail floated from the hostel as he fell to the ground. Shouting flared up. Seven scorpions flooded out of the estate. Dryden picked off two of them in a matter of seconds as I shot another. Circle the perimeter, Card yelled. Morales, stay on Lawson six and take the right. Dryden, take the front courtyard and stick with Hane. I'll get around to the back and start clearing the house. We don't want them calling reinforcements. We sprinted toward the mansion. A member fired shots at us as we took cover behind a marble block behind potted plants. Bullets chewed through the stone as I returned fire. Morales unsheathed his sog blade, stood up on the fire had ceased and threw it. The knife landed in the enemy's eyes. His body tumbled back as he continued to unleash a spray of lead everywhere. The back of his skull cracked open with the impact of the fall. Advance, Morales shouted. We moved further up to an overhang supported by clay beams. A member fired shot at us from the inside. Morales was thrust backwards in the air. I squeezed the trigger at the opening. I whooped around and scanned the area for any advancing movement. You okay? I asked. I'm fine, Morales said standing up. The bullet must have hurt but his vest had protected him. We trailed along the western side of the house. We glanced around the corner to see Haine Avede chucked a Molotov before it burst. Hain shot the man who had tried to kill him. The smell of fuel was pungent in the air as his combatant's lifeless form buckled. Haynes kicked in the door and entered the place. We followed behind him, our guns at the ready. The main foyer had a large spiral staircase in an open area which resembled a hotel lobby. Three waited for us. Haynes' armor got hit as he executed the first attacker. Morales took out the secondary. The third unloaded around at us as I shot him in the arm. His gun dropped and he fell to the tile. He unsheathed the hatchet stood up and ran towards me with a wail. I gave him two rounds to the neck before he went limp and face planted. Card's voice rang out. Grenade! We went to the ground and covered our ears. An explosion rocked the eastern side of the mansion. Debris showered us. We concealed our faces from the cloud of destruction as best as we could. Card came down from the blitz staircase, dragging two bodies with him. He threw them down to our level as he leapt over the railing dust and mass blanketed him take what they have and reload he said it's clear from the bottom up we have the basement left to search go our commander pointed at the oak wooden door swung open in the far left corner i was in the front of the group i turned on the flashlight attached to my scope I descended a rickety old staircase to the subterranean part of the narco mansion. Card was closest to my side with the others following. We entered a baroque-style wine cellar. Copper plates hung on the walls. Shelves with carved drawings on their oak held long rows of bottles. A scorpion jumped out from behind a wood barrel. I grabbed his arm and snapped his wrist and slammed my hand into his solar plexus. He doubled over and I gave him a knee to the face. I grabbed the back of his head, swept his feet out from under him and placed him in a rear naked choke. Card tapped me on the shoulder. Don't kill him, he said. Let him go. He might have some answers that we need. He's the only one left alive. I released him and stood up. Card had Morales translate his questions into Spanish. Where is the soul devourer? Where is Victoria LaSalle? The scorpion spat on Card. Card pulled out his handgun and shot the man in the left knee. Tell him that he'll be wheelchair-bound for the rest of his life unless he starts talking, Card said to Morales. The man began crying as Morales repeated the words. He says that there's a map leading to where they are, Morales said. The Temple of Pujan. It's in the head of the Olican statue near the pool. Retrieve it. Card said after facing me. Dread and you go with him. I went up the basement steps and out towards the pool. I passed to piles of bodies. At least twenty scorpions lay dead. A fire was burning the ground on the other side of the mansion from the throne Molotov. The old man who was a former hostage of the first scorpion I shot at was lying down and bleeding but alive. I cut the restraints, binding his wrists. I gave him an MRE and advised him to go home. He thanked me and went into the desert. I approached the Olakun statue. I drove my K-Bar into the hedge he held. I slipped my black gloves on. I dug my fingers into the hollow interior and pulled out a thick piece of brown parchment covered in grime. Morales stared at the map after Card had grabbed it. He unfolded it on the surface of a table in the cellar. We let the scorpion go after dried and administered aid to him in the form of a tourniquet. We gave him a fractured beam to use as a walking stick. I helped him up the stairs and brought him to the edge of the property. We made sure that he didn't have a cell phone or a radio. I wished him good luck as he hobbled away. I knew the environment, coupled with the severity of his injuries, was going to take his life. This does point to the temple," Morales said. That can't be right. The temple is a myth, it's a place destroyed during a war between rival Mayan kingdoms in the 5th century. Well, we're about to see if it's real or not, I said. I reloaded my AK-47. We sat in the back of a Blackhawk, flying through the air in a direction using the map's coordinates. Morales took off his vest and revealed bruising around his ribs. I gave him my vest since his got damaged, and I went into the back and retrieved a new one. Your tattoo, Morales said. Who wrote it? Ambrose Beers. I said. It's the definition of a saint from his book, The Devil's Dictionary. What does it do for you? It reminds me of how nobody's perfect. Keeps me from self-loathing. Thanks for what you did back there, Morales said. What you did back there was hot-headed, Card said. Good job to the rest of the team for dealing with the Jarhead's mistake. I took the criticism, aware of the firefight started with me trying to do the fair thing and saving an old man's life. Straight on, the pilot shouted. We stared. It can't be, Morales said. A moss covered pyramid made of old stone came into view on the horizon. It was the ancient building seen in countless historic drawings. I thought of human sacrifices painted blue and brought to the top. My mind could not escape the image of their hearts eaten by a predatory god. The sun lowered, the Black Hawk landed on a neighboring hill covered in grass. We jumped out and took position on precipice. We crouched and stared through our sights and night vision binoculars. Oh my god, Dryden said as he squinted through his ACOG. You see in this? There is a campfire, tents and bodies in the distance. The corpses look starved. They rose as if they were about to be burnt or buried, and they all wore the scorpion uniform. A figure walked past them, and I recognized her. i found Alicia, I said. We take her alive, Card said as he pulled out the same tranquilizer gun that he had used on me a day and a half ago. She knows where Victoria is. Is anyone else with her? The dead, Dryden said. We're heading in, Card said. Maintain concealment. We approached the pyramid, the sounds of rattling snakes and the smell of rotting flesh wafted towards us with each step. We crouched low in the bushes within fifteen feet of the sole devourer. A hatchet flew by my head, a gnat wrapped around my body. Card pulled out his gun and fired. A mass scorpion ran near me, and while I wanted to shoot, the net constricted my body and I could not lift my weapon. He hit me upside the head with the butt of his AK and I lost consciousness. I woke up. Everything came into focus like an image in a microscope. I heard arguing in Spanish. Looking over with my wrists tied in vines, I saw Morales hung upside down from a palm tree, right by his side where Driden and Card abound in the same way. Most of our gear was gone. I felt my knives were still intact, but there was no way of using them. Alicia smiled at us as a campfire's flames roared behind her. Next to her was a folded-out briefcase lined with hacksaws, rods, pliers, and needles. "'Where is Victoria?' I yelled at her. The soul-devourer laughed and walked towards me. She reached out and grabbed my jaw. She leaned in close enough to kiss me. "'They're inside,' she said, pointing to the mouth of the pyramid." See all those bodies. She gestured it to the men drained of blood. Alicia pulled what looked like the front of a human skull with the two bands near the back. It resembled a Dio de los Muertos fashion item. Leathery snakeskin wrapped around the bone matter. Victoria's lover is the one responsible for this, Alicia said. We didn't kill him for sport, we did it for vengeance. Do you even know what the Poochins are, gringo? They're shapeshifters, creatures able to take different forms. The boy wandered around the temple one night when we fell asleep, after he had tried to escape. He found the mask, one we knew was sacred. But his ignorance costed him and us everything. He decided to put it on and he resurrected them. Victoria is about to become a feast for the Poochins. My men were as well after her foolish boyfriend fell victim to his own curiosity. You are soon to be also. Eras un pera tonta, Morales said. Pinche Pero, she said after walking towards him. You'll be the first one I torture. Morales brought his hands down. A knife slid from one of his bracers. He cut the vines which imprisoned him, and he dug the knife into Alicia's forehead. She slumped to the earth. He bent upwards and cut the bindings on his feet before landing on his back. The same guard who had knocked me out unleashed a spurt of bullets at the escaped ranger who pivoted to the side. Morales grabbed a beretta off Alicia's belt and ended the scorpion's life with a shot to the chest. He cut the rest of his team members down from the bindings. Card had a black eye, dried and had a scrape on his forehead and Hain looked exhausted. We got our gear from the tents and put on our combat attire once again. You heard her. Card set his emotion to the mouth of the pyramid. Victoria's in there, let's go. What about the Poochins? Dryden asked. You know, the shapeshifters brought back to life. You believe in old wives' tales, Card asked. Alicia was trying to scare us. Dryden stared at the seal. I don't see how these men could have had blood removed from their bodies, sir. It doesn't add up. Not our problem, Card said. Focus on the goal at hand. We've all seen worse and you know it. Let's go in. Dryden nodded and we went into the temple. There was a long corridor with a floor made of stone blocks. The first few walls were heaps of ancient mortar. Once we were in a larger area with hung torches which lit the way, we walked on hollow ground. The Mayan interior had stucco friezes, depictions of human figures lined the barriers, they had elaborate bird headdresses, jade jewels, and each one sat cross-legged. Ceramic vessels were on the shelves against the walls. Glyphs of goddesses with snake heads, and other defied rulers of an age long gone and greeted us. And we went into another chamber, a wooden funeral mask with emerald beaded teeth hung in the center and gazed down at us in warning. In the next hall, there were holes in the ceiling. Fluorescence from the moon and stars pierced through them as beams. Obelisks lined up like an Aztec stonehenge. Victoria was in the middle of the room. She wore a white top and black cargo pants, given to her by the cartel caked in blood. She was staring at the ceiling and looked at me as I approached. She was bound to one of the pillars, and I got the robes. Your father sent us to save you. Card said. They? She said. Who's they? Morales asked. They're coming for us. The sound of hissing filled the room. Something moved to my left. When I turned with my gun aimed, I saw Dryden lifted off his feet and carried toward the ceiling. His form floated through the beams of light. He screamed, released a few shots, and then vanished. The remaining four of us pointed our guns up. Dryden fell back down to the ground. He was pale, thin, and devoid of blood, like the men who were out front. His breathing had ceased. The thing swooped down. It was a serpent the size of a battering ram used to tear down doors on medieval castles. Two black leather wings outstretched on either side. The wings had sharp tips laced through it like sticks used to hold a kite together. Card pulled out his knife and slashed at the monster. The stringy and fibrous gliding implements tore. Blood spurted from it onto his clothes. Haine came up from behind and tried to climb into its back but its body was too slick. I ran up to Haine. I climbed onto his shoulders and leapt onto the creature's back. I yelled out a battle cry and emptied a clip into the Pugin's head. After pointing the gun straight down, it fell forward like a slinky. I landed on my side and slid from its flesh. Card grabbed Victoria's hand and ran towards the entranceway after motioning for us to do the same. We followed at a sprint, and one of the beasts slithered out of the shadows as fast as a vehicle going full speed. Its body writhed with serpentine movements towards us. Its wings folded onto its form with tightening muscles. Its body locked up to spring at us as grotesque noises echoed in the chamber. Card pulled the pin of his grenade and threw it into the creature's mouth. It exploded in a cloud of entrails as we continued running. Another Poochin followed behind it. As the third one neared us, it began to change its own form, mutating. I was not eager to find out what shape it would take next. I lobbed a grave behind me and went outside. The creature's head had made it to the threshold of the mouth of the pyramid. Morales turned around and began shouting at the eyes. The creature's tongue lashed out and hit him in the knees and its gaze burrowed into him. Morales' gun dropped as his body froze and began seeping out blood in front of me. The red fluid had soaked into the earth and gushed towards the fangs of the monster. I lobbed more grenades until my belt was empty. I grabbed from Morales' belt and retrieved his keychain and another bomb, and I threw it at the monster. We ran over the row of dead scorpions. Victoria tripped over Alicia's body. I helped pick her up and we continued to run. The base of the pyramid was the first to get wiped out by the blast. The rest fell as if a hurricane had wreaked havoc. The stones tumbled down on the creature's body, halting its advance. Morales got buried with it in a maelstrom of fragmented rock. We ran up the hill and jumped into the Blackhawk. It was two minutes before Victoria was securing a chair and we had lifted off the ground. As we ascended, I looked down and saw more slithering forms. I wish that I could go back and retrieve Morales and Dryden to give them the proper burials that they deserved. I grabbed an RPG from the back, leveled it, took in a deep breath and fired a missile at both of the snakes. The targets evaporated in flames. The palm trees, bodies and blocks of granite became engulfed in an inferno below. The blazing debris rose as an angry storm before it all collapsed to back down. The mission was successful, Cart said. We did it. Good job, man. We remained silent for hours after, as the desert landscape passed beneath us. The keychain Morales had kept stared back at me, the scorpion frozen in amber. I decided to pocket as the keepsake, a remembrance of the man who had served by my side. We were soon over the border and back into the U.S. My dad sent you... Victoria asked. We all nodded. Alicia told me my father's been funding money for rival cartels in this region, Victoria said. She stared out at the night sky before she continued. He's involved in arms deals down here for terrible people. He always told me that his money came from oil, but he lied. They didn't take me hostage with the hopes of making money. They did it to torment him. None of us said a word. Victoria reached into one of these side pockets of her cargo pants and pulled out the Mayan skull mask. The very object which had caused the rift between what we recognized as real and the unknown. The item which had allowed those beasts to escape from their world of sleep. Their nest. This made me feel alive when I was wearing it, Victoria said. And it made Lucas feel amazing too. It brings out a sense of godliness. Have the three of you ever felt anything like that? I pulled out my forty-five and shot the mask. A fog filled the inside of the chopper emanating from the remaining pieces which ran down on us. I kicked what landed on the ground out of the compartment to the nether sands. Howard LaSalle's mansion came into view as Victoria screamed at us. before we get into the next video i just wanted to talk about another one of our sponsors upside rising costs have us all thinking about different ways to cut back personally i've had to cut back on eating out and going out with friends it could be that driving less or buying less from the grocery store we can all agree that there's nothing fun about less so that's why i started using upside I don't have to cut back on the things that I enjoy because I earn cash back on essentials. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys uh, gas, groceries, or eats out. With Upside, I don't have to cut back because I get cash back on every purchase. And with that, I'm able to spend that extra cash on a coffee to treat myself. Download the free Upside app to get started. I found the app super easy and convenient to use. Just use my promo code MrCreeps. And get five dollars or more cash back on your first purchase of ten dollars or more next claim an offer for whatever you're buying on upside check in at the business and pay as you would with a credit or debit card and you get paid you can earn three times more cash back with upside in comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs which is a pretty good deal download the free upside app and use promo code Mr. Creeps to get five dollars or more cash back on your first purchase of ten dollars or more Again, that's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code Mr. MRCREABS. We discovered the body of an unknown man in our home. The police have been hiding the case. Written by Mad Magazines. Editor's Note. This is all the documentation that I've managed to find regarding this incident. Officials have tried to conceal information about this case, but I couldn't let it go when my own family were the ones affected. Over four years, I've gathered as much evidence as I could. Please respect the privacy of those involved. Notice Authorities are seeking help identifying a man who was found deceased in a residence on one nineteen two thousand one. two thousand one, sex male age thirty to forty race white height five nine weight one hundred forty seven hair brown eyes brown one hundred twenty one two thousand one. LM conducted interview with DC, age 37. LM begins. I want you to know, first of all, that nobody is in any trouble here. This isn't a criminal investigation. All we're trying to do now is identify him. And of course, you and your family were the last people to see him alive. We didn't see him alive. Your daughter said she did. You can't say that you would know living from dead. She's only six. She found his body. I guess that she must have seen some movement from him before she woke you up. He didn't look dead, did he? Don't you think? Where do you work again? You work at a nursing home, don't you? Yeah, I do. So you've seen dead people quite a lot, haven't you? Oh yeah, man. And he just didn't seem like any dead person that I ever saw. I'm guessing that he couldn't have been there for that long, but he was just... You know, in a movie when you see an actor playing dead, and you can just tell that they're really not. Is it right that you felt for a pulse? Well, yes, and there wasn't one. It felt like I was being tricked. His face still had color, but he was cold to the touch. It didn't make any sense. Well, maybe it's because you're not used to seeing someone so young and dead. Yeah, maybe. What we need to do is figure out how we got here. It's just you and the kids right now. I'm a little confused on where the father is. Dean? I have no idea. I haven't heard from him since July. Have you ever filed a missing persons report about him? I didn't think it would be a good idea to put everyone through that. He's done this before. He, he can take care of himself. Okay, so on this night, it's you and the kids who goes to bed first. Jules went to bed at 8. Joe went to bed at 10. And yourself? I think midnight. Two hours before you guys found him. Yeah. How do you think he got in? What's the security situation in your house? Nothing fancy, I don't have any cameras or anything. Just one lock on the door. I've never really thought about it. Were you still awake for those two hours? Could you have heard him get in? I was asleep from there until Jules came into my room and woke me up. To clarify, that was at 2am. It was. What did she say? She was saying that there was a man downstairs and she said that he was showing her something. You must have been terrified. I wasn't, she's so imaginative. I don't even know what I thought. Joe was there too and he was standing at the doorway and he looked kind of panicked. I told Jules to stay in bed and Joe was saying that the man downstairs was dead. He just said that there was a dead guy lying on our living room floor. I asked if he did anything to Jules and he said that he didn't know. He said that Jules had found him first, but he thought that he was probably dead already. So, you just went downstairs. I thought that it would be Dean. Don't you think that they would have recognized him? No, I don't think they would have wanted to get too close. I told them to wait in my room and I went to check. I went and he was lying face down. He looked like he had just fallen asleep. I heard hardly thought that he was dead. I thought maybe some drunk guy had climbed into our house thinking that it was his, I don't know. But then I thought it was Dean maybe it was just a trick of the light but i recognized him as dean i was so scared for joe and jules how would i ever explain if it actually was him but you couldn't see his face well now i turned him around and saw him and he was just someone else In coroner's notes read john doe zero one two zero zero one no unusual markings or tattoos on the body unable to find traces of drugs or illicit substances in the body. No signs of trauma anywhere in the victim could not determine a cause of death. Of normal nourishment, no exact food was found in stomach contents. No signs the victim received any dental care in his life, but the teeth are in good condition. The subject has abnormally long fingers which appear to be growing. E.g., the ring finger was four and a half inches long when first measured, and after four days, it was around 25 inches in length. The rest of his fingers had grown a similar amount. No other part of the body has grown. The palm is still average-sized. 122, 2001. LM conducted an interview with JC, aged 14, My sister woke me up. I think it was like 15 minutes before we woke mom up. 10 minutes, I don't know. Well, what did she tell you? She said something about like, a guy was in our living room. Did she say that he showed her something? She didn't say that to me. I, I don't really think she said that to mom either. She said that he said something like, he said something about like, all the things that she could see. Could you tell me the exact words that she said? She said, he said that there's so many things that I could see. How did you feel when she said that? Well, I was scared. My sister says some crazy stuff sometimes, but it seemed really wrong. Like, why would she come up with that? I just thought some guy was in the house and I was like really, really scared. But you braved it out. I mean, I had to. I went to the landing and we can see down into the living room from there. I saw this guy just lying there face down. I just got mom. I never got up close to him. You said your mom locked the door. Do you know of anyone else who could have had the keys? Not that I know of. What about your father? Do you think that he might have been a friend of your dad? Dad wouldn't give keys to someone, even his friends. His kids that live here. You don't know my dad. I Come on what do you think happened to your dad i think he might be dead the story of the strange man by jules c there was a strange man i did never see him before i knew talking to strangers was bad but he was in my house and he said that he wasn't a stranger he called me jules he knew my mommy and my brother's names his fingers were longer than i had ever seen it went all the way down to his feet. He told me that he wished me the best and said that there were so many things that I could see. I went to go get Joe, but when he went to look at the strange man, he was lying down and he wouldn't talk to anyone. Mommy said he was dead, actually. Dear Dana, we understand your family has had a troubled year. We are writing to voice our concerns about Joseph. Joseph. We recommend that you choose to approach mental health services for him. On the 4th of March, Joseph was missing from his second period class. Another student said that he locked himself in the bathroom, and he was shrieking about something. We went to go check on him and found that he was indeed locked in a cubicle. He told us that he was hiding because there was a dead man lying in the floor of the school hallway. He said that he recognized the body as his father. He was obviously inconsolable. We understand that his father is missing. Now, of course, there was no such body. We have excused Joseph from class for the next two weeks and encourage you to help him get mental health support as soon as you can. Important. Burial of John Doe, January 2001. As you know, we had originally made plans to cremate the unidentified body found on 119-2001, as it was of no forensic importance. However, we argued his case may be of some forensic significance. DNA is still pending. We made plans to bury him at a local cemetery. This can't happen now, as his body is now unaccounted for. I cannot explain how this happened, but nobody at the coroner's office can find the body. Lambert was the coroner on this case, and he made a bizarre insistence that the unidentified man's fingers were growing to over 30 inches while he was in the morgue. I came to view the body with him on 3-6-2001 and found that it was gone. Lambert told me that John Doe's fingers had grown to a point where they were touching the floor of the morgue. He said they remained upright and did not droop downwards. He had taken photos of the growth. At the point where they had touched the door, his flash seemed to splash outwards and cover the door. I'll attach the photos that Lambert showed me for your interest. Have you seen our dad? He's been missing for almost a year. He is 34 years old, 5'9", about 140 pounds and has brown hair and brown eyes. If you can see this dad, please call this and get back in touch. We miss you and we need you back. Love, Joe, Jules, and Dana. Authorities are seeking help identifying a man who was found deceased in a parking lot on 3 2001 Sex, male. Age, 30-40. to 40. Race, white. Height, 5'9". Weight, 147 pounds. Hair, brown. Eyes, brown. Finger, 4-inch. The strange man came back. By Jewel C. Mommy and I were shopping. I was standing outside the car while Mommy was putting the stuff in the car. I saw a man standing in front of me. It was the same man that I saw that night. His fingers were longer now. As long as a car. He has put them on top of the car because it's too hard to hold them up. I asked if he wanted to be mommy, but he said that. He hadn't met her before. He said that I should go back to her. Mommy came out and asked who I was talking to, and then she screamed. I looked down and he was lying on the floor and wasn't speaking to anyone. I tried to explain to mommy that he was talking to me, but she got scared and made us go home. She called the police again. Body was found in a parking lot on 319-2001, curiously by the same family who had found JD01-2001 in their home in January. We have spoken to the mother and son again, and someone from the juvenile division has spoken to the daughter. We were unable to gather any new information from them. We have raised the theory that this body is the father as he matches the physical description. However, the entire family is not recognized him as such. We ourselves do not personally see a resemblance. We would like to pursue this through DNA. But no DNA sample can be established from the John Doe. In fact, we can't match the January discovery with the March discovery through DNA. But you know as well as I do that it's the same man. I believe that we need to heighten security on this body. I believe that we should bury him as soon as possible in case we lose the body again. I would like to note that when we first found the body, we believed that he had been dead for less than two hours. The body now must have been dead over two months, but there isn't even one sign of decomposition. As I send this email, his fingers have grown about ten and a half inches. From Heavenly Memories Memorial Gardens, subject... Disturbances to grave marked as unknown 2001. On 322, your department paid to bury an unidentified man here. On the morning of 416, we discovered 10 deep round holes in the dirt of the grave. We discovered these holes went all the way down. We looked with a penetrating radar and it appeared that no body was down there. We exhumed the grave and found that the body was gone. The body bag that he was buried in also had these ten holes pierced in it. We are working with the police department on this, and are hereby closing off the grave. Wanted by the New Jersey State Police Race, white Age, 52 Height, 6 foot Weight, 190 pounds Hair, grey or blonde Eyes, green Troy formerly worked with the Burgeon County Police Department as a coroner. We suspect that he improperly handled human remains while he worked with us. He has absconded and maybe in risk of his life. Burgeon County Police Department, how can I help you? Hi, I'm calling from the Blue Star Motel. On Route 80, right? Yeah, this guy checked in and I recognized him from one of the wanted posters. Francis Troy. Oh, did you happen to see if he has anything with him? Just a suitcase. A big one. Yeah, pretty big. Ma'am, stay where you are and don't go to his room. We're going to dispatch somebody right away. Incident report nine eight, two thousand one. Paulson and I entered room thirty four of the Blue Star Motel at twelve oh two AM and found Troy was lying in the bed. He was fully clothed and there was a pool of blood on the pillow around his head. A 22 caliber pistol was in his hand. The room was undisturbed. The clerk told us that he had checked in at 10.56 under the name of Frank Glenn. We looked for the suitcase and found that it was empty except for a note. Paulson noticed that there were some dark brown hairs in the paper, so the body may have been in there before. We read the note and it doesn't tell us where he might have left the body. Paulson and I searched around the perimeter and could not find the body. Notes on John Doe 01-0817-Coroner Francis Troy The body is a white male in his late 20s or early 30s. No signs of decomposition. I could say the death was less than an hour before he was discovered. He's 5'9", 145. Hair is brown and short and eyes are also brown. No distinct scars, tattoos or other markings. No signs of drugs or alcohol in the system. No trauma to the body. I could not determine the cause of death. Can't pinpoint any dental treatment having been done. But teeth are in good condition and all are present. I have also had a hard time taking fingerprints. I know other people in the department have tried, but the deceased does not appear to have fingerprints, but there is no sign of any chemical alteration to get rid of them. The body also has uncommonly long fingers. Burgeon County Police Department, how can I help you? Hi, my name is Dana Campbell, I want to call about my son, he's missing. Where's your residence? We're in Chester in Pennsylvania, but my son's run away. He called me and said that he's in New Jersey. I called into to the Chester PD and they told me to call here as well. Well, of course, ma'am. Could you please tell me your son's name and age and any other information that you think is important? His name is Joe and he's 14. He's got problems right now. His dad's been missing since July of last year. Joe thinks he thinks his father called him. When did he say the call had happened? Well, on Monday. He packed up all of his stuff and told me that his dad had called him and that he was in New Jersey, in the Blue Star Motel. He asked me to take him, but my son's been. He's been seeing and hearing stuff that isn't really there. We've been talking to all of these psychologists. Is that the point where the son ran away? No, I think he was in the house for around an hour after that. He talked to his sister and told her to tell me that he was going to get a bus into New Jersey to look for his dad. I went to the bus station and I asked them and they said that. They saw him get on a bus. Do you think his dad was really the one that called him? Do you think the story's true or could he be meeting somebody else? I don't know if the call really happened but he's obviously convinced himself that it's his dad. Do you think that he's at risk? Yes. Okay ma'am, we're doing everything that we can. Incident report. Fourteen eight 2001 Patterson, Clayton, and I were told to stake out the Blue Star Motel in relation to Joe Campbell, who we believed to have been lured to the motel by an individual posing as his missing, presumed deceased father. We considered the possibility this individual was in fact the late Francis Troy. We put the building on lockdown. Clayton interviewed the guests who were still here. None of them seemed to have any knowledge of Francis, or the whereabouts of the body or the boy. Patterson went down into the utility room at 12.09am after he said that he had heard something moving in there. He said the body that Troy had stolen was down there. He seemed shaken up and we asked him what we were about to see, but he said just to come down. The body had abnormally long fingers, as Troy had described. He was lying face down on the floor and his arms were extended upwards, with his fingers reaching out of the window. From what we could see, the fingers were at least twice the length of his body. When we panicked and we called Chief Armendiez. He said to just put the body in the body bag and close off the room, because he would be sending back up. Clayton went to go look out for the missing boy. Patterson got the body bag and I lit out for the body. I moved up to the window to see just how far the fingers could reach. The fingers were outside the window and they must have reached out for over a mile. See photos. At about twelve thirty four AM, I heard Patterson come up with the body bag and I went up the steps to open the door for him. When we did turn around, the body had vanished entirely. Psychological report for patient 0145. Joe, age 14, was admitted to a mental hospital after a runaway incident. There were many previous incidents of his possibly psychological breakdown. As we understand it, his missing presumed deceased father had bipolar disorder. No diagnosis has been made for Joe, although we believe most of his breakdowns are to do with the trauma of losing his father, and with enough counseling... He could probably move past it. The incident that occurred was that Joe got a phone call from a man claiming to be his deceased father. The man told him to come to the Blue Star Motel in Bergen County, New Jersey. Joe says that he's in two minds if this was really his father who made the call. He had recognized his voice, but raised the possibility that it was somebody else. Joe asked the caller what room he was in, and the caller oddly said that he was in the utility room. He had explained that he had a job there and that he was fixing it. Joe said in retrospect that he should have known it didn't make any sense. He never made it to the motel. He stayed at the bus station until an officer saw him. He said he realized that the motel was by a highway and that there was no safe way to get there. He was inconsolable by the time that he was found. Joe was a lot more stable since this incident. He says that he has come to accept that he most likely will never know the whereabouts of his father. He has claimed that he sometimes hears his voice calling to him, but ignores it. He responded well to grief counseling. He has reported sometimes having nightmares about long fingers reaching through his window and under his door. He's not sure why. Other patients have reported a similar delusion. Last Christmas, my friends and I were kidnapped by Santa Claus. I was the only one who survived. Written by Trash Tia Airports are a war zone during the holidays. But I had a theory. Okay, hear me out. I was tired. I hadn't slept in almost three days due to overdue homework and college applications. I hadn't had a decent meal for maybe a week. And every time that I blinked rapidly, I swore that I could hear colors and taste shapes in my mouth. Squares were my favorite. They tasted like strawberries. Anyway, I wasn't doing great mentally and physically. And all I wanted to do was get on a flight home after spending what felt like a century with dad. With three hours to kill a dead phone and half a brain cell left, I could do nothing but sit and watch the holiday chaos around me with squinty eyes and listen to Last Christmas play on the intercom for the 100th time. My theory was... Brainwashing. Last Christmas is a great song, right? It's relaxing, romantic, and cheerful, which makes it the perfect song to control the masses without them even knowing. I've heard different countries use tactics to control their youth. In Europe, they play classical music in train stations, and public places is a calming technique. But this was different. This wasn't calming. This was CIA level torture, which made it the perfect unseen weapon. I know that I've lost you, and trust me, I would have lost myself just listening to this too. I had nothing else to think about, truly. My entire being had been taken over by George Michael, by that melody and those lyrics. It had snaked its way into my mind and leached onto me. Exhibit A: I turned my half-lidded eyes to a family of four sitting across from me, two screaming kids and a mom and dad who looked like they wanted to crawl into the ground. Their expression showed that they were ready to blow, to start yelling and screaming and demanding. However, they stayed perfectly calm. The mom kept her attention glued to her phone, ignoring her kids, and the dad stared at the ground. I noticed there were two types of people. There were the people who had been sitting in the terminal floor for three hours. And then the newcomers practically throwing themselves through security like wild animals. The people sitting and standing around me were relaxed. I mean sure they looked pissed. They looked irritated and impatient. Their expressions had twitched into not quite smiles and squinty eyes. But did they do anything? No because they had listened to last Christmas sputter through the intercom for the last three hours, and their minds had been stirred into a giant soupy mess. the world to start unnecessary arguments was gone. Their knee-jerking impulse to compliment the pathetic attempt at decoration around the terminal, gone. Even their ability to act impatient, to roll their eyes and be passive-aggressive. While the newcomers, Exhibit B... Oh, they were a different breed. The newcomers did not belong in our industry, territory which we had fought for. I had sat in the same seat for almost four hours. I had watched YouTube videos that I didn't even like. I had scrolled through Twitter and Instagram so much that I was seeing the same tweets, the same posts. I had even found myself mindlessly looking through my settings app, which was the bottom of the barrel. My patience was gone. My ability to ask if this flight even existed had gone. Newcomers, however, were far more vocal. They yelled. They yelled at their kids, at their significant others, as well as staff. They were bumbling balls of energy while we were rotting inside. We had succumbed to the intercom's cruel will, forming a kind of family. The little old woman sitting next to me who I thought was dead... She was family. The teenager playing League on his laptop. Family. The group of 20 something year old women all watching Stranger Things at the highest volume. How did I know that? Their squealing. Their obsession with quoting every single sentence. And their erratic, bursts of synchronous laughter. Which did not fit a group of grown women, but to each their own. You can enjoy whatever you want. Even they were family. Heck, even the middle-aged woman who acted like I had committed a war crime when I dared eat my tuna sandwich near her. Family. The group of us had made it to the finish line. We would sit there for however much longer the plane was delayed and listen to that song. And we would hate every second of it. Each lyric would turn our brains and bodies inside out and make us consider murder, death, worse. Because plunging a knife into the back of my head repeatedly would be better. Being waterboarded would be better. I mean anything. My God, anything would be better than that song. George Michael had us all by the throat and didn't we all know it. At least, that was my theory. Until the family I thought had succumbed to the intercom sort of snapped. And it was a domino effect. All it took was a crack and then they were all splintering. The ones I thought had been silenced began to complain loudly. Kids that I thought were asleep started to scream. Even the little old lady stood up and demanded to know when we were boarding. So yeah, that theory went out the window. I think it was the hundredth or 101st playthrough when I started to doze off. Letting my head drop out of my chest. I had been trying to stay awake. But there was only a certain amount of time that my brain could register the same song. Before it became gibberish. And I lost myself under multiple layers of irony. I thought that I was hallucinating when a shadow loomed over me. When they spoke they were in fact not the lyrics to Last Christmas. Which almost shocked me. I was dumbfounded. I had half a mind to ignore them. I just wanted to sleep. I wanted so badly to escape George Michael and his wicked grip on my mind my being. It was only when someone gently grabbed my shoulder and nudged me did realization start to bleed into my brain. The woman's voice was kind but also impatient when I shook her off as she shoved me again, this time a little bit harder, prodding me in my back and then my makeshift pillow, which was just my jacket that I had fashioned into a headrest. Excuse me, miss. My body jerked and I forced myself to lift my head, blinking through fraying light. There was an oldish woman standing over me. She looked well put together in a neat uniform and strict ponytail, pinning back straggly blonde hair. The boy playing league three seats away suddenly looked uncomfortable. He was shifting in his seat, his hands wrapped around his backpack. It took me a disorienting moment to realize that he was planning on making a break for it. I watched him stand up halfway before slumping back down, his laptop clutched to his chest. His eyes flit back and forth. He was looking for an escape route, but there was only one escape route and that was through security. The kid met my gaze for a moment and I automatically read his expression. His eyes were wide with panic, lips curled in disdain. He was waiting for the woman to start talking to me. And that was when he was going to make his grand escape. Unlucky for him, however, he too was on her radar. Stay where you are, she said. The woman was looking at me, but her words were directed at him. The kid sunk back into his chair. Oh no. I knew what her words were going to be before they left her upturned lips. Like it secretly thrilled her to hunt down stray kids. How old are you? The woman cleared her throat. By law, children under the age of 18 are required to use our unaccompanied minor service. I thought about lying. 18 wasn't that far away, just a year. But I did have a baby face. For my birthday, I had tried to get into a club. Unsuccessful. The guy taking IDs just laughed at me. I'm 17. That is classified as a minor. I'm 18 in 6 months. She chuckled. But you're not 18 yet, correct?" The words slipped from my mouth before I could bite them back. So, am I in some kind of trouble or...? The woman nodded and straightened up, pointing to the panel above us displaying my delayed flight. From the look on her face, I had given her the exact answer that she had wanted. Lies. I could see that she was tired. The dark circles she was trying to hide without makeup were a giveaway. I figured she was using her influence and so-called power to feel better about herself, which was valid. If I worked at an airport, of course, I would have made up some reason to yell at people after being screamed at all day. Customer service, obedient people with a meager wage. The kid several seats away seemed to make a decision to get up and run, but another guard had caught him. Flying without a parent or guardian puts you under our responsibility. Your flight is not due until tomorrow. To my annoyance, she gestured for me to get to my feet. If you would like to follow me, please. Speaking in an overly enthusiastic tone, the guard was friendly enough, but she wore a no-nonsense smile. When I sent her a pain to look, she grabbed my coat and bag for me. I'm not going to ask again. I started to get up, catching the eye of the little old woman. She handed me a wrapped candy. At least some people were apathetic. Satisfied, the guard turned her attention to the boy who had paled significantly. And you? He curled his lip. His dear, caught in the headlights expression wasn't helping. What about me? How old are you? I could practically sense the cogs turning in his head. Like me, the kid was also considering lying, and he would be able to get away with it. He acted far older than he was. The only thing which gave him away was a school crest on his jacket. I hadn't noticed it until fully drinking him in. Initially, I thought he was a college kid, but looking closer, his face was younger, maybe 15 or 16. What I thought was a simple sweater was actually a school uniform. He looked like a private school kid, which explained the sudden attitude. And the expensive looking laptop clutched to his chest. I'm 16. His answer delighted her. Oh, well, would you look at that? Two miners hanging around an airport terminal in the middle of the night. It's 10 p.m. I don't care, it could be 4 p.m., and the same rules would apply. Um, but we're not even doing anything, I was just on my laptop. Again, I do not care. You're a miner traveling without a parent or guardian. You're under our protection and responsibility. His face lit up. Wait, so I can just leave? The woman's lips twitched. Young man arguing with me is not helping. I can do this all night and you won't be catching your flight. Ned seemed to hit a nerve. Grumbling, he got to his feet. This is stupid. We're not babies. Yes, but in the law's eye, you are still the child. She said cheerily and then make you our responsibility. Shooting everyone a scowl, the kid pulled up the hood of his sweatshirt and ducked his head into feet. We had no choice. Standing up, I grabbed my backpack and headed through security. The place was empty, though I had expected it. It was pretty late at night. The guy behind me was dragging his feet and every time his sneakers squeaked on the floor tiles, I thought he was going to make a run for it. He didn't though so at least I wasn't lonely. As the woman led us through double doors and down a long, winding corridor, I expected him to try and at least attempt conversation, but when I turned to introduce myself, he was glaring at his phone and had his earphones in, most likely to block me out. Where are we going? I couldn't help but ask after stumbling through the third automatic door. The place looked progressively more abandoned the deeper that we found ourselves, my question was ignored so instead of following the woman's heels a click-clacking down a particularly eerie hallway, I came to a stop in front of a metal door. If she was going to ignore me then sure, I could act like the child she thought that I was. What's in there? I asked conversationally, pressing my face against rough metal. I was ignored again, and the boy who I thought was the rebel of all rebels had twisted around. An impatient scowl curled on his laps. I'm pretty sure that I would have been just as annoyed as him, but sitting in the terminal for almost an hour a day, listening to these same song had messed with my brain. I had entered the airport a normal, average person with coherent thought. Hours later, I was a shell of myself, thanks to last Christmas. Now that I was free to walk around the back rooms of an airport at night, I felt a sense of childish exhilaration running through me. Unfortunately, my companion failed to share it. He just mumbled something under his breath and trailed after a guide like a sheep. Hey, I saluted him, eager to make at least one friend in my bad situation. What's your name? He scoffed. Why should I tell you? Why not? I'm Ruby. Guys. The woman's voice echoed back through the door at the end of the walk. If you waste my time, I will waste yours when it's time to board your flight. The sound of her click clacking heels had stopped. And yes, that means what you think. We can stop you getting to your flight. For the first time since meeting him, Private School Kid and I seemed to finally meet a mutual agreement. He sent me a look of horror. They wouldn't, he said in a sharp breath. Would they? I can believe it. But that's illegal, they just can't, they just can't keep us here. His age was starting to show. I nodded, gesturing down the hall. We should probably, I motioned for him to follow and to my surprise he nodded. Right. The two of us hurried to catch up with her and I pretended not to see the kid's trembling hands. The woman was waiting in front of a large metal door. Her smile was far too wide for me to trust her. Maybe she had just secretly enjoyed throwing us in isolation. I could hear yelling on the other side, screaming, maniacal laughter, kids. I don't know why I expected quiet holding cells but it made sense, right? Stick us all in the same room and let us run wild. Something slammed into the door with a bang and the two of us jumped, but the guard didn't seem phased. I was starting to wonder if she had been driven to this if she had been dealing with whatever was on the other side of the door. I didn't blame her attitude towards us. I call private school kids luck. His eyes were wide, almost cartoonish. And here we are. Officially, it is the children's traveling alone lounge. Though we call it the underworld. Her lips quirked. For adults that is, but for kids it's a playground. Think of it like a club. All of you share the same situation. You're all stranded here for the night, so I expect good behavior. We do not tolerate the following smoking, drinking, or substance abuse. Also, bullying, teasing, or threatening fellow passengers. There are activities available in sleeping bags if you just want to sleep. If you need to leave the room for anything, please let a guard, and we'll be happy to help you. She grabbed the handle and squeezed it, her eyes glinting. Do you have any more questions? When is our flight? I asked. You said it's tomorrow, but is there a specific time? She shrugged. I can't share that information until closer to the time. Though I'm estimating late afternoon, there's an engine issue. That didn't sound right. If the problem was the engine, why not put us on a different plane? But it's Christmas. The guy surprised me with a hiss. I could tell that he was upset and was trying to hide it. He gestured to the door, his lips twisting. It's Christmas and you're throwing us in there. I haven't seen my parents for a year. The holiday is the only time that I can see them. I could see the lump in his throat. My mom, he whispered. She works all year round. I only get to see her two days a year. The guard inclined her head, her expression unwavering. Oh, sweetie, I've heard that story 50 times today. She said with an eye roll. You would not believe some kid's imaginations. Do you know how many kids in there have terminally ill family members or pets that they have to get to? Something crumpled in the kid's expression. I'm being serious. That's what they all say. She said with a light laugh. Wait, no, my mom. She cut him off. Those sob stories don't work with me, honey, and not after 20 years. The kid raised a brow. Maybe, he said. Or you're just an emotionless, horrible person. I caught the woman's lip twitch and part of me wondered if she was going to risk her job and strike him. He didn't mean that, I hissed out. Grabbing his arm I squeezed with just enough pressure to warn him to shut up. It was like having an annoying younger brother. Still though, the guard brushed off his words. With a grin splitting her lips apart, she pulled at the handle. Have a good night. Before I knew what was happening, the door was being yanked open and we were being violently shoved forward. The guards grinning face, disappearing behind a loud bang. I thought she was going to follow us in, but clearly the woman wanted to get as far away as possible. It was like being thrown into a lion's den. I stumbled, almost tripping over a stray book which I had guessed had been thrown at the door seconds before. At first glance, I was seeing exactly what I had expected. A war zone. Kids everywhere, mostly teenagers who had seemingly reverted back to having the minds of five-year-olds now that they had been put inside a large room, with nothing but a pathetic pile of comics and board games sitting untouched. There was no authority to judge them, and the high school hierarchy that they usually followed was gone. It was Lord of the Flies without the, well, death. Speaking of five-year-olds, there were only two littles a girl and a boy sitting cross-legged on the floor, their heads buried in an iPad. The two of them were unfazed by the fight going on behind them between two guys or the group of girls caught up in some bizarre handshake ritual. There were three TVs mounted on the walls, all of them playing the exact same Christmas animation of a snowman sitting outside a log house. No other kid was paying attention to it, but the second I found myself looking at it, I couldn't look away. There was something in the window of the log house. A shadow. I could see it bleeding behind a blur of orange flame. Can you see this too? I whispered to the private school kid. You mean the snowman animation turning my thoughts to mush? He let out a shaky breath. Ruby, I can't move. Neither could I. Hey he was mudging me but his voice felt and sounded a million miles away i was aware of his clammy hand wrapping around my wrist his fingernail slicing into my flesh my sister came here a year ago his voice bled into my ear she came back different different yeah different his voice echoed in my skull Oh uh, lydia she was she was different The boy said again, his voice slurring. It sounded like he was struggling to find words, to hold on to what he was saying. I can't recognize her anymore, my own sister. She's all that I have and need to find her. I need to, I need, I need. When the kid trailed off, I realized that he was edging forward like a zombie. Now fully aware that I couldn't look away from the animation on the screen, I could feel myself starting to panic. I could sense his too. His gaze had been captured. Whatever he had been meaning to say had been torn away. All of his attention glued to the animation. Just like mine. I felt like a leech worming its way into my brain and taking hold slowly but surely. The snow in the animation suddenly looking too lifelike. The snowman's carrot nose twitched. And the shadow grew bigger, peeking outside of the window. That was what had me, I thought. It was the shadow. I was looking for it, searching for its origins. For a logical reason why it was there. And all the while, I was starting to lose myself. My vision blurred. I felt my arms go limp by my side and my body sway to the left and then to the right. I started to follow the private school kid my mind starting to bleed into incomprehensible cotton candy when somebody grabbed my shoulder and yanked me back. I didn't move, my gaze still glued to the screen, only half aware of a strip of material being wrapped around my eyes, blocking out the animation. It wasn't enough to free my mind, but slowly, I started to regain my spiraling thoughts. Blinking rapidly, I struggled to heave in gulps of air. I could still see the animation imprinted behind my eyes, clawing into my skull. Falling snow, a shadow that I had to find. I had to find it. And with it came memories of bland-looking hallways, a children's home filled with little kids, and my own room filled with wooden bunk beds. A middle-aged woman stood in front of me with sympathetic eyes. I'm so sorry about your mom and dad, she whispered. Ruby, if there's anything that I can do for you, just let me know. The woman pushed a glass of milk across the beaten wooden table. I could hear her in my mind. She sounded real. It was perfect clarity. But I knew that it wasn't real, because i had seen my dad earlier that day. I had eaten breakfast at his kitchen table, and laughed at stupid Hallmark movies with him. My dad was alive. So, why was this thing, this sentient leech, trying to tell me otherwise? When I was conscious enough to know what was happening, I realized that I was being dragged back and shoved into something soft a beanbag. Once I could breathe again, my mind my own, my hands instinctively went to tear off the blindfold. Hey! A girl's voice had startled me. I could sense her in front of me, warm breath tickling my face. Are you stupid? Don't take the blindfold off. Someone scoffed. This time, a guy with an accent, maybe British. Oh, she's not very bright, is she? Oh, she's just scared. I felt the graves of the girl's fingers playing with the blindfold over my eyes. Are you okay? I had to bite back a hysterical laugh. What kind of question is that? I want to know what's going on. First, I sensed to get closer. Tell us your parents' names. Something ice cold slid down my spine. What? Oh, you heard her, the Brit said. Your parents' names. For what? I demanded. We should call someone, right? Th- the police. No signal in here. He deadpanned. Names, now. I took a deep breath, blinking against the blindfold. My parents are Cassandra and Adam Jameson. Good, the girl breathed. Keep a hold of them. Repeat them in your head if you have to. And whatever you do, do not look at those screens. I thought back to the private school kid's blank expression. His unblinking eyes. Why? Because, the brick cut in, those things make you think that you're an orphan. I stiffened up, remembering the false memories trying to take over my mind. Hey, the girl hissed. Lev, is it really that hard for you to be nice? I am nice, he grumbled back. It's not my fault she has a brain the size of a walnut. She let out a good laugh. I heard the sound of flesh hitting flesh into very quiet. Oh before she turned her attention back to me, prodding me in the forehead. Excuse Levi, I'm pretty sure this is his first proper social interaction in years. I don't think that I've seen him smile one time, and we're only friends because he saved me. But yeah, he's right. If he didn't shield your eyes, you would have forgotten you had a family too. That explained the presence that I had felt trying to claw into my brain, but that's "'Majorly messed up. "'Yeah, we know. Makes me wonder. My brainwash a bunch of unaccompanied minors "'into thinking that they're orphans. "'I thought back to what the private school kid had said earlier. "'He spoke of his sister who had come to this airport "'and returned home, different. "'The guy that I was with, I said, "'I think that he knows something. "'He said something about his sister. "'He was looking for her. "'There was a pause.' I could sense them looking at each other. You mean the kid in the uniform, Levi said. Yeah, I don't see him helping anytime soon. He was gone before I could cover his eyes. i had already made an unspoken pact myself to look out for him. Very true, Talia said. However, I am intrigued by him. Opening my mouth to speak, I jumped when the sound of the door opening almost sent me tumbling off of the beanbag. I sensed Levi and Talia next to me, and then hands scratching at my face, struggling to pull off the blindfold. Don't look at the screens, Talia hissed in my ear, before the material fell away from my eyes. I was once again greeted with a large room full of older kids, and two little ones who had dozed off on the couch. The teens were wide awake however, their gazes glued to the doorway where a man dressed as Santa had emerged. Two male guards dressed in black on either side of him. Santa had guards, I thought dizzily. Why did Santa have guards? Shouldn't he have elves? Or at least people dressed like them. I didn't know why he was keeping up these Santa's real facade in front of a bunch of high schoolers. The only littles in the room were asleep. They've turned Santa into a frickin' meth-head. Levi, who was next to me, snorted. I risked a glance at him. He was exactly what he sounded like. A broad-shouldered British kid with bedhead hair and a permanent skull. He looked like the type of kid with a constant insomnia and a video game addiction. I did appreciate his Adventure Time switcher, though. Sitting cross-legged on the floor in front of us was Talia a redhead wrapped in a bright pink parka, with her face buried between her knees. The Brit nudged her. Hey, he said under his breath. Levi mimicked the other kid's blank look. When she didn't respond, he poked her. Tal, Levi spoke with a forced grin. You're making it obvious. She lifted her head slowly, her gaze glued to her knees. The girl was trembling. Levi and Thalia were right. Every kid in the room was in some kind of a maniacal trance. The man dressed as Santa ordered us to form two lines in front of them, depending on whether we were on the naughty or nice list. I watched the kids jump up and join each line with no complaint. When my name was called to the nice line, my stomach crawled into my throat. Part of me was hoping that I wouldn't be on there. Ruby Jameson, go. Talia murmured, if that's you, we have to keep a low profile. Then we'll make a run for it, just act like the others. Not exactly reassuring, but I had to take her word for it. Jumping up, I maintained a bright smile, joining the line categorized as nice. Jude Whitlock. The private school kid jumped up from where he had been sitting cross-legged on the floor, quickly joining my line and bouncing behind me. I had only known him for a few hours and I had never seen him with so much energy. He looked almost high. And that was when he was under some mystical Santa mind control. Levi Parrish Santa squinted at his dog-eared notebook before lifting his gaze, his smile widening. Nice. I expected Levi to ignore his name but he joined the line too. I risked nudging Jude and he actually met my gaze. "'Yeah?' "'Your sister. "'Did you say that you were looking for her?' "'I don't have a sister.' "'A shiver slid down my spine. "'Your mom,' I tried again. "'You've been looking forward to seeing her all year.' "'His expression didn't waver. "'I don't have a mom.' "'See?' "'Levi, who was standing behind you, said under his breath. "'He mimed it, drawing his finger across his throat. "'Gone.' Talia jumped when her name was called with a grin, far too maniacal to look normal. I caught Levi wincing, but they didn't seem to notice. By the time that Santa was finished, we were two lines of ten standing in front of the door. Those two, a guard nodded to the littles still dozing in the couch. Will the king and queen accept them? Santa inclined his head. I have a dear friend who has been desperate for a younger human child, put them with the others. Human? Did he say human? Risking a glance behind me, I caught Levi's wide eyes. What the? Talia's breasts were heavy. I think she was having a panic attack. She was our leader, I had guessed. I waited for her to speak to instruct us to do something, but the girl was frozen. All right, Santa announced, when the littles had been gently awoken and told to join the nice line. They did, their steps wobbly. Can the nice kids please follow me? Santa gestured down the hallway and the others followed him like the Pied Piper. We're going to a special place. We had no choice but to follow him. Taking slow steps, I made sure to make distance between myself and the kid in front of me. As we were led back down the hallway, I noticed that it was different, like a mimic of what I knew. But there were dips in reality that almost sent me to an abrupt stop. The hallway was sprouting grass and flowers and weeds of all colors. Even the air smelled different, like I was breathing in fresh lavender. The airport that we were in was abandoned, and had been abandoned a long time ago. Even the name was no longer there. ...covered in crawling ivy and trees that had broken through the ceiling. I was in awe. I definitely wasn't where I was supposed to be. It took me a while to notice my body was a lot lighter too. If I concentrated, I swear my feet hovered slightly with every step. When we reached the terminal and in the main lobby... ...we were wading through plants sprouting through the ground... ...which looked like they were dying. They felt like they were alive. Every time that a flowering bud had brushed my leg, our leaves had tickled my bare ankles. It felt like they were breathing air into my skin. Above us, it was daylight. A bright sun shone down on us, but the plants were still dying. They were still curling up, buds disintegrating. I didn't understand the plants until we neared the exit, and it started to rain. I felt it warm and wet on my face, but rain wasn't supposed to be warm, right? But still, I kept going, following the others towards automatic doors covered in ivy, flowers sprouting around them. It wasn't until I saw a flash of red on my jacket that I noticed the color of the rain red. Bright, ominous red. Unlike actual rain, it shone bright on my skin, trickling down my face and arms red rain. I watched, it sort of baffled, as rivulets hit my skin, trickling in tiny rivers. It looked like I was bleeding, no, like the sky was bleeding. Lifting my head, droplets dotted my forehead, and then my lips and eyes. I could taste it on my tongue, rusty coins, something inside me had snapped and I felt it like the spindly legs of a spider creeping its way on my spine. The sky was raining blood. Stumbling, I struggled to keep my facade. When we trapezed out of the airport into blinding sunlight, my shoes set foot on soft grass and flowers, flowers which were coming to life, spattered by intense red. Whatever was falling, what was staining me, painted me in blood, It was bringing them back to life. Panic started to curl in my chest and gut. I risked a glance behind me, but I only caught Jude's wide smile. No sign of Thalia or Levi. I looked again, but there was just Jude. It started to pour with red rain, but not just rain. Something hit the ground in front of me with a wet and meaty smack. I didn't register that it was ahead until I had walked past it. I recognized the head of one of the naughty kids. His eyes were still wide, lips split into a joyful smile. I wanted to scream, I wanted to cry, but something was stopping me. Maybe it was the gentle breeze which had picked up, blowing my hair from my eyes or the light giggles that I could hear. Again, I stumbled, this time over a twitching tendril snaking its way across the ground. The world in front of me was not the city that I knew. It was not bustling streets filled with late rush hour and late night shoppers. What I was seeing were winding roads covered in moss and ivy. I was seeing towering buildings which reached the clouds made of twisted branches. There was something that I recognized. It was a bus. A bus from our world. But like everything else, it looked abandoned and wrong. I don't even think that it had wheels. The bus was waiting for us on the edge of the sidewalk, and despite being soaked in bright red, I continued to walk, following the other kids as they hopped onto the bus one by one. The murmurs followed me, and the more that I paid attention to them, their presence grew. They played with my hair how many nursery rhymes my mother used to sing to me, And then one of their own in a language that I couldn't understand. But it was beautiful and melodic, something that I wanted to listen to forever. In the corner of my eye, a light was blooming, and the closer that I got to the bus, it glowed brighter. Those images were back the children's home, wooden bunk beds, my own unhappy face. My mom and dad were dead, they had died when I was eleven. The light was slowly encompassing my vision. Words began to form in my mouth. I didn't have parents. My hair was tugged violently. Their giggles growing shrill. I didn't have a family. Invisible hands shoved me forward, and I found myself lifted into the air for a fraction of a second before my shoes had touched down. I had no one. The words were a mantra. No family, no parents. I had no one, no family, no parents. I had no one. They had me and I could feel them. I could feel their prodding fingers, invisible feet kicking me and forcing me to go faster. Their presence was suffocating and yet my mind told me that I wanted it. I wanted them to push me further. Blinking rapidly, I was aware of Jude sidestepping past me and jumping onto the bus. His body disappearing in fraying light. Before I could follow them, a familiar hand grabbed a hold of mine and yanked me violently. I dropped onto my knees, and whatever had been buzzing around me, whatever had been playing with my hair and whispering in my ear, was gone. And then so was the buzz. It was there one minute, bathed in glowing light so bright that I had to shield my eyes, and then it was gone. Natalia was kneeling in front of me, her eyes were manic. Are you okay? She hissed out, grabbing my face. Hey, what was that? Instead of speaking, I wrapped my arms around her. Where did you go? I managed to get out. There were, there were these things. The girl pulled a face. We found out what they're doing to the naughty kids. I already knew, but I was still in denial of what I had seen. Also, Talia gently pulled me to my feet. I stumbled, tightening my grip on her arm. You should probably see this. See what? Talia took me halfway down the road, though she didn't have to pull me further for me to see it. Levi was strategically hidden behind a wall, pressed against it, and we joined him. What we were looking at was a cage... A huge wooden cage made up of twisted branches and vines which moved like they were alive, twining around the structure. There was already a growing audience of heads bobbing around. They didn't look human, though I had expected it. After all, we were in a different world. I glimpsed a perfectly unblemished skin and pointy ears, willowing hair tangled with roots and flowers and vines, bare feet bouncing up and down excitedly on smooth concrete. Levi let out a breath and twisted around, dragging a hand through his hair. "'I'm guessing that's for us,' he whispered, and the ones they took away on the bus. Talia nodded grimly. "'You should get out of here.' "'Hey!' "'Crap!' Levi ducked, dragging us with him. "'You were saying.' Three figures were coming towards us. "'I won't say that they were human.' Humans don't have faces both grotesque and agonizingly beautiful. And this is where I'm going to stop writing in detail, because I don't want to rewrite my experience and I'm running out of words. We weren't quick enough. Levi and Talia were snatched and dragged away kicking and yelling, and I was about to join them, before my attacker was knocked out from behind. It's okay. A youngish man said into my hair when I struggled against them, It's my job to get strays back home. Take it easy. Strays? Humans they can give back, or adopted heirs who escape. But what about them? Other lost causes, kid. He grunted. Leave them. Before I knew what was happening, I was in the back of a cab-like car, and no matter how much I banged on the windows and screamed to be let out, the driver ignored me. It felt and looked like a cab, but again, I'm pretty sure that it didn't have wheels. The driver called me astray and asked if I had been spat out of the kingdom. I wasn't alone in the back seat. There was a girl and a boy my age or a little older. Both of them looked human. At least that's what their clothes had suggested. The girl bore a dress ripped at her shoulders. A tiara of roots and thorns glued to straggly hair. When she looked up at me from where she was curled up against the window... Her eyes were hollow, cheeks gaunt. She was skeletal, while the boy was wrapped in the remnants of a varsity jacket clinging onto him. It looked like he too had once worn a crown. I could see smears of scarlet staining his forehead, where thorns had scratched and torn at his flesh. In the lake glow of the sun, I glimpsed a slit in his back, cutting into his flesh, bandages wrapped around proving red i didn't question it i didn't question the burns in his face and arms the manner whatever he was was true to his word the three of us ended up back in the empty kids lounge in our world on christmas day 2021 i saw an exact replica of myself greet my father she had my smile my voice the perfect mimic i watched them leave the airport and my dad didn't say a thing he didn't notice that it wasn't me, so what did I do? While the other two strays had abandoned me, they ran off before I could even speak to them. Ironically, I did end up in a children's home for the rest of my senior year. The thing with my face with a slightly pointing ears and a smile too big for a mouth, it has taken my life. This Christmas, I found a surprise waiting for me when I got back from my college class a sign that they were going to follow me no matter what. My roommate lay dead in a puddle of water, a piece of parchment stuffed on her throat, and standing in front of the window in my dorm room was a shadow bleeding into view. I recognized what was left of a school sweater hanging from a skeletal figure, a head of overgrown dark brown hair adorned with tangles of flowers, thorn and bone twisted into a crown. Jude... The crown looked like it had been forced onto his head. I could see indentations and cuts where it had sliced deeply into his flesh. He didn't say anything. His lips curved into the first genuine smile that I had seen on his face. Despite his smile, his body was battered and bruised. Ink markings covered his arms and neck, fresh burns scalding the skin of his hands. He was gone before I could open my mouth leaving me with my dead roommate in the note, written in perfect calligraphy, words lightly smeared, was an invitation to the ceremony taking place this year. If I did not attend, they will come and get me themselves, and my roommate is the first casualty of my ongoing disobedience. I think they know that I was somehow connected with Jude, and he too was paying the price. Does that mean that the others are too? I wonder if I'm crazy enough to try and get them back. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.